Good morning and welcome to the Patriot Radio News Hour. Happy Thursday. We're getting closer to the weekend every second. Well, you have found economics and history with attitude. This is your substitute teacher, Glenn Biddle, sitting in for Joe, who is on a well-deserved vacation. Wendy is holding down the fort in Phoenix, and Jason and Brian are manning the outpost on the front range. And just remember, streaming is now up for the Colorado show at shoutcast.com, and then you search for the American Freedom Network. Uh, the Front Range yesterday, uh, Front Range show yesterday was really good and featured one of their new advertisers, Grandpa's Pawn and Gun of Longmont, Colorado. And then on that note, uh, today's show we're going to feature some Second Amendment topics. Uh, Thursday is one of my shooting days. I was out shooting yesterday after the the show. I went out and shot skeet with my old art teacher from high school. And today I'm going down to the range where I'm the vice president, and I'm going to shoot rifles and pistols. What's funny is uh, sometimes I'll call into the show or call into Joe uh, to place an order, and uh, I'm down at the range and I'm shooting while I'm calling in. And uh, remember how Eric always used to say the urban miners, those were the people that would go into an empty house and just strip all the copper pipe out. Well, when I'm at the range, I'm kind of an urban miner because I'm down there picking up all the brass that everybody leaves. And the brass that I can't reload, I take to the scrapyard, and you can get about $1.50 a pound for uh, brass casings, which is, is not bad. Okay. Um, now, we're, uh, today we're going to also talk about the Great Depression and how it kind of relates to the uh, housing crisis we had in 2008. And Ramon has some audio links that we're going to get, get go to in the second segment on the Great Depression. Now, also, uh, remember the numbers, 800-951-0592, the website, allamericangold.com. Um, since I'm your teacher and school's not out this summer, you have homework. It's on the website. And uh, just to take a look at that, remember we have the USA Debt Clock. I want you to go on there and take a look at the debt. Remember, you're focusing on the upper left-hand corner, and you're going to look at the debt, and you're going to do a screenshot of that and just put that picture up on your desktop. And in about a month, you go back and take a look at it, and it's shocking, the, the uh, change in it. Uh, we also have the Chair of the Fed game. Uh, interactive website you can go on to and you can be the Fed chairman and see if you can keep your job as they throw different problems at you and how you have to either raise or lower the Fed funds rate to keep the economy going. We also have the IOUSA video clip about a half hour long, excellent uh, portrayal of what our debt actually is and the problems we have and, and maybe how to fix it. We also have two infographics. There's uh, a, a great way to look at how much gold has ever been mined in the world, and, it, and like Joe says, it can fit into an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And then $20 trillion of debt visualized in stacks of $100 bills. It's from 2017 when the debt was uh, $20 trillion, now it's $21 trillion. Uh, we have two new things up on the website today. Uh, one is the story behind the wonderful Wizard of Oz. I'm going to go cover that today. It's not just a children's movie. It actually has some economics and, uh, and great uh, parallels of populism in this country. And I also have another video clip up that I want you to check out. It's called Maxed Out, Hard Times, Easy Credit, and the Era of Predatory Lenders. This from was produced just before the housing crisis in 2008. Now, I've got to forewarn you, there's a little bit of language in it. Um, there's two segments where there's a stand-up comedian. He has a potty mouth, so if you think you'll be offended by it, just turn your volume down or fast forward through it. And the other neat thing about this video is that there is Professor uh, 
Elizabeth Warren is in this. And this is before she became Senator Elizabeth Warren and got into all her problems with her identity crisis. Uh, President Trump calls her Pocahontas. I like to call her Liawatha. I think that's pretty funny. But anyway, I actually like her in this video because she is going after predatory lenders, especially the credit card industry. And she's actually completely on the right side of this topic. And it's just a wonder how she's transitioned as time's gone on to really just backing the socialist agenda of the Democratic Party. But that's what's on the website today. Um, let's take a look at the markets. Wow, what a difference a day makes. Uh, we, everything's in the green today, it looks like. I guess the plunge protection team did its job. They can go home and get a good day's sleep today. Um, everything's up. Dow Jones is up 208 points. The Nikkei is up 255 points. Hong Kong Exchange is up 169 points. Shanghai is up 60 and as far as commodities go, uh, oil is down a bit at 69.65 a barrel, and gold is up three dollars and twenty-nine cents at 12.47.70, and silver just creeped over sixteen dollars an ounce. It's at 16.01. It's up 19 cents. It's still a good range to buy silver, and that brings us to today's special. We have rolls of silver eagles at three hundred ninety dollars a roll. And those are, I mean, Wendy told me those were 2018s. Take a great advantage, take advantage of these lower silver prices and, and stack them. I, I love to stack silver. I am a silver guy. I know Joe's a gold guy, but I'm a silver guy. You can stack a ton of silver with, with, with the money that you have available. I like the, uh, junk silver. Um, just think about it. A, a junk silver quarter will buy you a gallon of gas for your car. You know, somewhere around 350, 360 for a, a quarter, a silver quarter. Um, a mercury dime, that, you know, dollar ten, dollar fifty cents. That could buy you a loaf of bread. So that material is great stuff to have if you ever have to do bartering. Next week we're going to get into prepping, and and if you're listening to this show, you're already prepping financially, and you are prepping to hedge against inflation. But we're going to also talk about prepping next week, just on a daily basis, and how you can really stockpile some things and have them available if you need them. When you need them, it's too late. You need to uh, pre-plan and make sure you have everything ready to go. Uh, so in this next break, we're going to take a look at the Great Depression. And that's going to be interesting. So remember, the numbers 800-951-0592 are special. Rolls of silver, $390 a roll. Silver Eagles, take advantage. Give Wendy a call. See you on the other side. And welcome back to the Patriot Radio News Hour. It's a Thursday. We're getting closer and closer to the weekend, and everybody's looking forward to that. Uh, we're going to start off this segment by the topic is the Great Depression, but I want to kind of relate it. And this is a great way to teach things to kids. You, you show them something that happened back in history, and then you relate it to something that happened recently so that kids can kind of go full circle and it kind of it registers. It's kind of easy for us also to uh, take a look at that ourselves and so at first let's start off with um, a quote and it says those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it and that's George Santayana and so if we look at the Great Depression you know, what caused it everybody thinks it was the stock market crash that called it caused it but there was a lot of factors that were going on the you know the end of World War one and the, the payment of reparations from Europe um, and, and loaning money to Europe for that they Germany especially so they could pay back their loan 
loans to the Allies and pay back their debts to the, for the war reparations. That was a big deal. Now, a lot of that contributed to it. Also, a slide in demand in the United States also contributed to it. But, and there's a lot more to it. But you have to also think, what were people thinking and what were they what were they feeling when this when this hit in America? Because we'd never really gone through that. I mean, you were just coming out of the Roaring Twenties. Everything was great in America. So, Ramon, if you could go ahead and play clip one for me, we'll call this Charles Merrill's warning. Stocks were becoming a national pastime. Americans bought millions of radios and shares in the company that made them. As cars became popular, so did auto stocks. The demand for stocks pushed prices through the roof. Between 1924 and 1929, the Dow Jones Industrial Average shot up more than 300%. You had a lot of people in the market that knew nothing about the market except they were going to make some quick money. And the thing was obviously overblown. Unscrupulous brokers made things worse by pressuring investors into buying questionable stocks. There was a lot of opportunity for people to believe in what they were being told, and there were a lot of people there willing to take advantage of telling them that this company or that stock or something was going to just really go gangbusters. Even more dangerous, many investors bought stock on credit, known in the trade as buying on margin. You could buy stock if you were a good customer for 10% margin. So if you wanted to buy a share of $100 stock, you could put up $10, and the stock itself became collateral for a loan for the other $90. The widespread use of credit and the tremendous rise in stock prices made some investors wonder how long the good times could last. In 1928, stockbroker Charles Merrill of the firm Merrill Lynch sent a bluntly worded warning to clients. Now is a good time to get out of debt. We do not urge that you sell securities indiscriminately, but we do advise, in no uncertain terms, that you take advantage of present high prices and put your own financial house in order. Charles E. Merrill. Now, does any of that sound familiar? The rising price, the rising demand for stock causes cause prices to go through the roof. All you have to do for this is insert housing market for stock market. 2007, 2008, and look at what was happening. You had a $200,000 house that went up in value, let's say, to 800000 People would then <laughs> take a home equity loan on that 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 uh, extra money and then buy a pool, you know, buy a boat, do all this. And then when the prices started to come down, then they become upside down on their house, or they tried to flip all these houses. Okay. The trick was, and, and if you listen to that Charles Merrill's warning, what was he telling his investors to do? This is a rhetorical question. You can yell the answer at your radio. There's nothing wrong with that. He was telling them to sell. Take advantage of current high prices and put your financial house in order. Sell and get out of debt. And only if people had listened to him, they would have been fine. But it, this is, is eerily reminiscent of the housing crisis when you had extended demand and, and it just pushed the prices up and up and up and up. And then when the bottom fell out, then there was a problem. Our next clip is called Panic and Ruin. Ramon, can you play clip two, please? Disaster struck Wall Street in October of 1929. 
consumer spending on big-ticket items hit a slump, causing several key stocks to decline. The drop sparked a rash of margin calls, where brokers demanded that investors put more cash into their stock market accounts. This was the risk of buying stock on credit. When a stock shrinks in price, it's no longer valuable enough to be collateral for the loan. Investors must put up cash or margin to even the scales. If they don't, their account will be liquidated. October 24, 1929. Thousands of investors failed to come up with the necessary cash by the time their brokers entered the exchange. When the opening bell rang at 10 a.m., the liquidation sale began. Well, it started off, as I recall, like a busy day, and pretty soon it got worse and worse. Suddenly, uh, it appeared that everyone wanted to sell and no one wanted to buy, and, and uh, uh, there was a sense of frenzy. The credit binge that had built up the market was suddenly eating through it, like a virus. The imbalance between sellers and buyers pushed all stock prices lower forcing margin calls on other investors and more liquidation. So many shares were sold so quickly that the ticker was running four hours late. Thousands of investors flooded the financial district desperate for news. That was clip two, Panic and Ruin. And uh, so demand for big ticket items slumped. And if you could look back into history in, in the, at the housing crisis, Nobody wanted these high-priced houses anymore. So now that you have you have a a liquidation sale of these houses, and people are upside down in their their mortgages, and now you have a huge problem. I often ask my students in my class when we talk about economics items, um, which is more important, supply or demand? What is more important? And I just let that hang out there for a while, and and then I'll and the kids, you know, they'll say, "How many hands for supply? How many men for demand? How many just don't know?" and Kids think they know what, what the answer is, but then I'll say, okay, think about going into Walmart. Walmart is the epitome of supply. When you walk in there, you grab your cart, and then what are you? Well, you are demand. There's tons of supply. It's up to you to go in there and, and maybe be the purchaser and buy. That's demand. Think about it in your hometown. How many pizza places are there? In my hometown, there's probably 11 or 12. And you so you have plenty of supply, but they don't survive unless there is demand. So at this point, there was no demand for stocks, and now the prices are falling. And then, then the housing crisis, and now there's no demand for houses, so the prices are falling, and people are just getting destroyed. Okay, Ramon, can you play clip three? I, this is titled Losses. The drop was staggering. General Electric went from more than $1,600 per share to $154. General Motors, $1,075 to $40. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 89%. $72 billion in investments wiped out. And people who had their whole life savings tied up on Wall Street vanished. It's out. No more. Zero. A person went from $500 to $15,000, and now he's down to zero. Okay, so think about that, $72 billion in losses. And 
I used to love to listen to G. Gordon Liddy's radio talk show, and he would always break down, let's say if he said $72 billion, he'd say, well, that's $72,000 million. And when you say that, it sounds much worse than what it is. And if you take a look at this, the housing market in 2008, if you had a house that was at, let's say, 200000 it goes up to 500000 and then it goes back down below 200000 you're in bad shape. And people lost their shirts. They lost their shirts in 1929. They lost their shirts in 2008. It, it's very distressing when when we see this. And like I said at the beginning of this, uh, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And look at what's happening right now with the way the Federal Reserve is blowing up the bubble of the housing market again. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pop. And you don't want to be caught in this and not being able to pay your mortgage. We, I, I don't believe it. It's hard to understand how people will get right back into this market and try to play it when, when they got beaten down in 2008. Here they are again now in 2018, and they're, and they're playing the same game. And it's all the Fed's blame on this because they just make the money too easy. And, you know, they're making it a little bit harder now with rising interest rates, and it's a little bit more costly to get a mortgage. But I guess they're trying to slow it down a bit, but it, it's it's careless for both the Fed and it's careless for actually the person that's trying to invest in that. Okay, so I, those clips are actually pretty neat. Um, that came from Modern Marvel Series 3 uh, and then Episode 8. So this is an old one here. The Modern Marvel Series has been around forever. And it was kind of interesting to see if you ever watched that series, uh, how, how great they go take deep dives into different topics. Okay, now we're going to move on to The Wizard of Oz. Now, this was the the first Technicolor movie that was that was made. There were two in 1939. One of them was The Wizard of Oz. The other was Gone with the Wind. And I use this in my class to teach symbolism uh, as far as teaching populism. Now, back during this time that Frank Baum wrote this story, there was a kind of a battle between what type of money standard were we going to have, gold, silver, Greenbacks, you know, what was it going to be? So you had gold bugs, those are the ones that favored gold, and you had silverites, those are the ones that favored silver. I have a great article here. This is up actually on the website as well. Um, so it's called The Story Behind the Wonderful Wizard of Oz, a parable about populism, money reform, and the 1890s Midwestern political movement led by William Jennings Bryan. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was first published in Chicago in 1900. Its author, L. Frank Baum, was the editor of a South Dakota newspaper and supporter of William Jennings Bryan, who stood three times unsuccessfully as a U.S. presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. The particular concern of both Baum and Bryan was the nature of the money supply then prevalent in the United States, and the Midwestern states in particular. In America during the 1890s, as in Britain, there had been a severe depression. Many businesses had gone bankrupt, farmers forced to sell up, factories closed, and workers were unemployed. True, some farms in the Midwest were suffering from drought, but most were still capable of growing food. The businesses and factories were still capable of providing the things that people needed. The workers still wanted to work to provide those things, and people would still want goods and services produced if they had the money to buy them. The money in the United States then as now was entirely created by the private banking system. The pretense existed then that money was based on gold. Even now, some people still think it is. The major banks based on the East Coast and West Coast could vary the amount of money in circulation, lending more to encourage commercial activity than foreclosing on loans to put the people out of business, enabling the banks to acquire their businesses cheaply. Baum and Bryan wanted 
the money to be based on silver, not gold, as silver was more readily available in the Midwest, where it was mined. Such a money supply could not be manipulated by the banks, so the story of the Wizard of Oz starts with a cyclone in the form of an imagined electoral success for Brian, based on populace that would have been in the Midwest. Dorothy, sort of a proverbial proverbial every woman lands on the wicked witch of the east the east coast bankers killing her so freeing the munchkins the downtrodden poor but the wicked witch of the west the west coast bankers remains loose to deal with her and get back to kansas which is normality the good witch of the north representing the electorate of the north this is less than 40 years after the civil war tells dorothy to seek out the wizard of oz oz being short for ounce the means of weighing both gold and silver she also gives her a pair of silver slippers. Now, if you saw the movie, they were ruby, as where they were in the book. Now, remember, silver slippers aren't going to show up very good in a color movie, so they become ruby ones in the color film. Only these silver slippers will enable her to remain safe on the yellow brick road, representing the banker's gold standard as she heads toward the Emerald City, representing Washington, D.C., so we're half time on a Thursday. Get yourself some silver slippers. Call Wendy and get that special of Rolls of Silver Eagle. And we'll see you on the other side. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Mrs. Schlafly was a courageous and articulate voice for traditional values and common sense for more than 70 years. Now, continuing that legacy the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. George Lakoff, a professor emeritus of cognitive science and linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley, finds it very frustrating when liberals retweet President Trump. Lakoff has almost made a second career trying to teach Democrats how to communicate their progressive agenda to ordinary Americans. In an exasperated post to his friends on the left, Lakoff wrote, When you repeat Trump, you help Trump. You do this by spreading his message wide and far. Think about it. Every time Trump issues a mean tweet or utters a shocking statement, millions of people begin to obsess over his words. Lakoff continued, Reporters make it the top headline. Cable TV panels talk about it for hours. Horrified Democrats and progressives share the stories online, making sure to repeat the nastiest statements in order to refute them. Lakoff finished with this, Nobody knows this better than Trump. Trump, as a media master, knows how to frame a debate. It's true. Democrats and the media strengthen those frames by ensuring that tens of millions of Americans hear them repeated over and over again. Another example of bad liberal messaging helping Trump make his point came in the form of a photo of children detained in cages. Liberals tweeted and retweeted this photo and claimed how horrible Trump was. Unfortunately for the left, these photos were from 2014 and showed some of the tens of thousands of unaccompanied alien children who flooded across the border under Barack Obama. Most of these were placed with relatives living illegally in the United States instead of being returned to their parents as they should have been. President Trump is determined to change the system that allows these alien children from countries other than Mexico to remain here indefinitely. When the number of children spiked this spring, Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions took several other steps to stem the flow. Even pro-immigration Republicans are pressuring Trump to cave by extending the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, without building a border wall. President Trump is a welcome relief from politicians who care more about donors than voters. Trump should continue to be a choice, not an echo, on immigration and his use of Twitter, and stand firm for the border wall. 
This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Illegal immigration burdens our schools and social services and opens doors to criminals and terrorists. Outdated visa programs divert jobs from Americans. PhyllisSchlafly.com chronicles these outrageous unfair practices and provides answers. Go online to PhyllisSchlafly.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. back into the theme from the Rat Patrol, and that was such a great show. I watched that when I was growing up, and if you watch it today, it seems kind of silly because the Germans and the Americans were only like two sand dunes away from each other every week, and nobody ever really got killed. Just the, the actors that you never see again would get killed, but other than that, it was just a great show. Love the Rat Patrol. Okay, now we're getting back to our wonderful Wizard of Oz article here. Now, you have to bear with me on this you know i hope i'm not ruining your favorite childhood movie here with all the symbolism that's in it but it's actually a an interpretation of the movie and the book that that bomb wrote about populism and it kind of works and it's great for teaching kids this uh this kind of obscure topic of populism and then trying to bring into it the bimetallic system of money that we had at the time so it's actually very neat so let's move on here. Okay, on her journey, Dorothy encounters a scarecrow representing the farmers who do not have the wit to understand how they can end up losing their farms to the banks, even though they work hard to grow the food to feed a hungry nation. If only they could think it through. Remember, if only I had a brain. Next, she encounters the tin woodsman representing the industrial workers, rusted as solid as the factories of the 1890s Depression, and who have lost the sense of compassion and cooperation to work together to help each other during hard times. Also, a spell cast upon him by the Wicked Witch of the East meant that every time he swung his axe, he chopped off a bit of himself. He downsized. Then the growing party encounters a cowardly lion representing the politicians. This is alluded to as William Jennings Bryan. These have the power, though the power of Congress and the Constitution to confront the Wicked Witches representing the banks, but they lack the courage to do so, the cowardly lion. And what was he seeking? He was seeking courage. Dorothy is able to motivate these three potent forces and leads them all towards the Emerald City, Green, whence where Greenbacks had once come from, and an encounter with the omnipotent and wonderful Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz is initially quite majestic and apparently awesome, but he turns out to be a little man without the power that the people assume he possesses. He does, of course, represent the President of the United States. With the wizard's illusion of power shattered, he is replaced by the scarecrow, who would be another Lincoln. Remember when the Wizard of Oz is behind the curtain? He said, "Do not uh, look behind the curtain," and you know because he doesn't want to be exposed for the weak person that he is. The Wicked Witch of the West, fearful of her own power, then attempts to destroy Dorothy, but is herself dissolved in a bucket of water as rain relieves the Midwest drought and saves the farmers' livelihoods and prevents repossession by the banks. So, the Wicked Witch of the West represents drought and mortgage bankers and remember when they pour the water on her she goes i'm melting and she just goes away and the the plains indians if you remember that the the flying monkeys they represent the plains indians that were bought off with their caps of gold so there's just so much symbolism in this in fact you can almost read too much into it uh if, if you want to i've sometimes heard that 
that uh, Toto represented the teetotaler movement, the uh, the temperance movement. Now, I believe that's a stretch, but it's but it's interesting. So, if you remember, now now we're going to finish up here. The Good Witch of the South, representing the Southern electorate, tells Dorothy that her silver slippers, silver-based money, are so powerful that anything she wishes for is possible, even without the help of the wizard. Dorothy wishes to go home, and there and there all is now well because the land is stable and abundant money supply. Now, if you remember the movie, when it started off, it, it's it's gray. It's you know black and white. And when she encounters the, the traveling salesman, he later turns out to be the president. All the farm workers were the people that she meets on the journey. The Tin Woodsman, or the, the you know the yeah you know, the Tin Woodsman, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion. So they were. And she remember she said, "You all look so familiar to me." So it, it's still a pertinent message. Um, it. It ends this famous modern American fairy tale. It's a true message. It's been lost to the mist of time and the demands of Hollywood, but its message is no less pertinent now than it was written. William Jennings Bryan was neither the first nor the last American politician to try to reform the U.S. money supply. In fact, two money reformers achieved the office of president and attempted to put the money reform into action. But just like in the Oz story, the most powerful man in the world was not as powerful as people believed. In 1865, Abraham Lincoln introduced the original greenback which were paper money issued by the U.S. government largely to pay for the federal war effort during the Civil War. It was fiat money, money that made legal tender by act of Congress. Unfortunately, Lincoln died suddenly a few weeks later as his plan died with him. And then in 1963, President John F. Kennedy issued Executive Order 1110, which would have removed the power of money creation from all U.S. banks, including the privately owned Federal Reserve, and invested that power in the U.S. government. Unfortunately, Kennedy died suddenly a few weeks later, and his plans died with him. So I guess if you're going to go up against the Fed, you've got a problem. The only time that we really got rid of a a central bank was when uh, Andrew Jackson got rid of the second bank of the U.S. And and I should hate Andrew Jackson because my distant relative, Nicholas T. Biddle, was in charge of the second bank of the U.S., and between him and Henry Clay, they tried to do a power play on... uh, on Andrew Jackson, and he shut him down. And it, it was a savage move by Andrew Jackson in, the, in an election year to, to get away with, to do away with the Second Bank of the U.S. And then he took all the money out of the Second Bank of the U.S. and put it in what's called were private pet banks. And it, kind of that kind of backfired in a, in a way because then these banks started printing a lot of money on their own. And that led to other problems down the road. But, uh, I love Andrew Jackson. He he did great things. He actually paid off the debt. He wanted to get rid of uh, uh, paper money, or and he wanted to go on the gold standard. And it's kind of ironic that his face is on the twenty dollar bill. He would hate that today uh, if if he were still alive. You know, and he would it were if you know he would have a big problem with that. So, interesting story. Uh, do with it what you will. It's up on the website. You, you either agree with it, disagree with it, but give it an open mind. It's actually very interesting. Uh, and the kids eat it up. They absolutely love this story. It's harder for adults because, you know, we've loved that movie for such a long time and, and we don't like wrinkles thrown into into our, our easy way. So here we're, we are disturbing the comfortable when I read you this story. Now, to further disturb the comfort of our audience, let's talk about the Second Amendment. Now, this is my wheelhouse, because when I was in the military, I was a firearms instructor, and I got my first gun when I was 12 years old. It was a Ruger 10.22 rifle. I still have that gun. I've rebarreled it four times. I've shot out four barrels, 
uh, my dad and I would go out on weekends and shoot a brick of twenty twos, which is five hundred rounds. And so I I am a Second Amendment guy, and I'm going to read the Second Amendment to you here real quick. A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, the founding fathers who wrote this were excellent uh, grammarians. They knew exactly what they were saying. It's just later generations want to pick it all apart and parse it. That's where that comma in the middle of it is what, where the big argument uh, takes place, because the first part of it, a well-regulated militia, well, that the anti-gunners think, well, the, only the government should have guns then. And then the second part of it, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the pro-gun side that says, well, if the people are the people in all the other amendments, why are we not the people in the Second Amendment? And so we should definitely have our own right to keep and bear arms. Now, the Second Amendment goes back to the Lexington and Concord at the beginning of the, the American Revolution and the, you know, the midnight ride of Paul Revere. And, and one of the things that kind of lost in some of but we'll get to this on the other side, Paul Revere did not say the British are coming. Okay, and we'll talk about that on the other side. Second Amendment, guns on the other side. And we're back, Patriot Radio News Hour. We're talking guns because this is my shooting day, and that's what I like to talk about. Because we left off with the Second Amendment and how that one comma and then really kind of gets everything messed up. So if we take a look at, at Paul Revere, the Lexington Concord, Paul Revere did not say the British are coming as he's doing his his, his uh, warning ride. He could It could have been three old ladies walking down the road. They were all British back then. So the British are coming, the British are coming. That's really not a that's really not historically accurate. He did say though the regulars are coming or the redcoats are coming, meaning the British army is on its way to take your guns. And everybody to all the politicians, they said, Oh no, we don't want to take your guns at all. Uh, sure they do. They definitely want to take your guns. Uh, look at all the, and I'm going to ask you a series of questions here in a bit, and I hope you know some of the answers. Uh, some of these answers might be a little hard for you to, to, to come up with. Okay, so our Second Amendment is born out of Lexington and Concord, and that's that's non-debatable. That is definitely, that's where it comes from. And the British were looking to take to, to come in and take the guns from the militia so that they could not fight back. Okay, now let's fast forward to modern day. Now, how many gun laws are there on the books in the United States? Any any idea? I'm looking for a show of hands. I've got a bunch of show of hands. I see some hands. Okay. If you said 10,000, you would be wrong. Is it higher or lower? What do you think? Well, if you said 30,000, that would be too many, but I guarantee you the politicians would love to have that many. It's around 20,000 laws in the books. Okay. Now, Every time a shooting happens or every time there's a gun incident, the politicians come out and say, well, we just need sensible gun control laws. Well, guess what? They're already on the books if they were just enforced. There are so many. And and even though that they're on the books, a lot of these shooting incidents, there, there are 10 to 15 gun laws that are broken. These laws do not stop bad guys from doing bad things. They keep people that obey the law from from doing bad things because if you're an outlaw you're literally outside of the law that's the old english definition for it okay so that that's where we start we have plenty of gun laws right now on the books okay now where do most gun crimes take place 
Now, where do you think they take place? Do they take place where there's strict gun control or where people are legally armed? Where do you think it takes place? Okay, strict gun control or where people can legally be armed? Well, the answer is a great book. It's called More Guns, Less Crime by a, an economist by the name John Lott. And he has updated his figures. He, he went county by county in the United States. And he looked at the gun laws. And he found that in areas that have very lax gun control or places where you are allowed to own guns legally, the crime rate was down 20 to 30 percent compared to places like Chicago that have strict gun control, yet high homicide rates, or even Baltimore, which is uh, you know near me. Maryland has very, very strict gun laws, but we have very incidents high incidence of gun crime. So it doesn't make any sense. You would think if you had strict gun control, there wouldn't be any gun crime. And where you have no gun control, you would think the blood would be flowing in the streets. That's what they said about Florida when they passed your stand your ground law. They said there will be blood in the streets, but actually the crime rate's actually gone down in Florida because of that, because it's a basic economic law of substitution. When the price of beef becomes too expensive, you switch to chicken. So a criminal, if he is in an area where everyone is armed, him committing crimes now against people has become more expensive. So he's going to switch to a place that's cheaper. He's going to switch to a location where there where there are gun-free zones, where no one is legally allowed to have a gun. He's going to walk in, he's going to rob people or assault them. I saw a great article today in Florida. This carjacker uh, tried to carjack a lady. She had a gun. She fended him off, and then the guy went into a, a convenience store, and the people were armed in there. So this, this guy ended up hiding uh, in the back of a building, he was so scared from the people that all had guns. And you know, the left wing is going to try to tell you that people don't use guns for self-defense, but it, it's very prevalent that they do. Okay, next question. Do you own a firearm, and do you regularly train with it? Uh, I'm going out today to shoot, and I shoot somewhere between 1,000 to 1,500 rounds a week in my firearms training. I'm constantly training. I am a firearms instructor. I was a firearms instructor in the military, and I'm a civilian firearms instructor. I'm certified by the NRA to te- I can teach uh, handgun, I can teach shotgun, rifle, and I'm also a range safety officer. Okay, so if you own that firearm, you regularly go out and train with it. And can you assemble and disassemble that firearm? Okay, and do you know how to clean and maintain it? And do you have common sense part or common spare parts for that firearm? And if any of those answers are no or you don't know, you need to get some training. And you need to regularly train with that handgun or that rifle or shotgun because if you ever have to use it in a in a crisis situation, you need to have muscle memory. You need to just be able to load that shotgun, be able to load that pistol, be able to load that rifle. In in a tense situation, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, how are you going to be able to, you know, you need to know how to do it. It just has to happen. It just has to work. That's why... You just can't go out and shoot 50 rounds every three months. It's that's just not going to work. It's better than nothing, but it's not an appropriate level or plane you should be on as far as your training goes. Okay. The next question, now this one is, I think you should have plenty more than what what you think you should here. How much ammunition do you have for your firearms? 50 rounds enough? Is 100 rounds enough? Um, I think you should have 1,000 rounds per firearm. That's what I think, but that's just my personal opinion on that. Okay. Um, now, have you ever taken a training course? There are plenty of training courses out there. There's Gun Sight, there's Thunder Ranch, there's uh, Front Sight, 
there's all sorts of different farms and structures you can do, but you must go and get, you must look at the instructor and kind of vet them to see what is a good instructor and go from there. Okay. Um, Arizona is a constitutional carry state, but if you um, are not able to constitutional carry, which is open carry, you know, how do you get a concealed carry permit? How do you do that? Um, that that's a good question that you need to ask yourself. Um, and then what well, the next question is, do you have the right mindset and situational awareness when carrying? Now, if you are around a gun, there is always a gun in the equation. The police officers are told this all the time. Uh, if, if you're in a situation where you go to a domestic dispute, there's always a gun there. It's your gun, the police officer's gun. Okay, we'll bring this up on the second next uh, break. Uh, we are next segment's coming up. It's going to be the final segment. More on the Second Amendment and more about what's going to happen on tomorrow's show. What this country is coming to, I sure would like to know. If they don't do something by and by, the rich will live and the poor will die. Doggone, I mean the panic is on. a great uh, bump music to come back in final segment on a thursday we were talking about the second amendment okay so uh if you want some more information on the second amendment and and, and gun rights there's a great there's a few sites here i'm going to give you uh, one that i go to every day is keepinbeararms.com that's a, a great source for news it breaks it down by state and by topic and what's going on uh, there's also the gun owners of america and the second amendment foundation and of course the nra so those are, are great sources we're going to dive a little deeper into the second amendment probably on monday um tomorrow we're going to have jason on in the second segment we're going to do a little game show it's going to be uh famous person quotes and we're going to quiz jason and we're going to quiz even Ramon can play if he wants to tomorrow. I think it'll be a, a great time. Uh, and we're going to also just talk about some more current events, maybe some recycling tomorrow. Uh, if we talk about our special again, uh, we have Silver Eagles at $390 a roll. Those are 2018 Silver Eagles. So stack that silver. Get yourself some silver slippers like we talked about today with with uh, the Wizard of Oz. You can't go wrong with that. You click those Silver Eagles together and the magic happens. So that's that's great. Um, looking at the markets, well, nothing's really changed. Uh, we're, we're still in the green. The NASDAQ is up 92. The Dow Jones is up 213. The Nikkei is up 255. Hong Kong is up 169. Shanghai is up 60. Uh, gold is at 1247.30, and silver is dead even at $16 an ounce. So that, that's great for today. Uh, let's do uh, this day in history real quick. Okay, so in 1941... Moscow is bombed for the first time by the Luftwaffe. In 1957, U.S. Surgeon General reports that there is a direct link between smoking and lung cancer. And in a related story, water is wet. Who could not have figured that one out? In 1964, or 1974, rather, G. Gordon Liddy and John Ehrlichman and two others are convicted of perjury in connection with the Watergate scandal. Uh, G. Gordon Liddy, I loved him when he was on Miami Vice. I mean, he was 
never out of character. He that he was the captain real estate. He was just an interesting fellow. If you read his books, amazing guy. In 1984, Democratic presidential candidate Walter Mondale chooses Geraldine Ferraro as his vice or vice president and running mate. Okay, a notable verse today. Notable birth. 100 B.C., Gaius Julius Caesar, general and statesman, is born. In 1854, George Eastman, the photographic pioneer, Eastman Kodak Company. And in 1917, Andrew Wyeth, an American painter. Uh, he's famous, most famous probably, for his Helga paintings. Uh, they were kind of discovered. No one really had known he had done them. I actually saw those on display at the National Gallery of Art in D.C. It was very neat to see. Okay, so... Uh, Joe must be doing great on his vacation because no one's really heard from him. And I got a like a three-word text last night from him, like, "Hey, you're doing great. You know, keep going." So hopefully he's having fun. Uh, if you missed saying happy birthday to Eric yesterday, you see him around Phoenix. Wish him a happy belated birthday. And I like to say tomorrow we've got Jason coming on with us in the second segment. It's going to be great. Remember the streaming is up for the Colorado show you go to soundcast.com and then search for American Freedom Network and you can listen in okay so we'll see you tomorrow happy Thursday we're almost there get those silver slippers call Wendy 800-951-0592 you can't go wrong with silver slippers see you tomorrow tomorrow